Welcome to the Robert Lewis Sermons Podcast, a collection of sermons from Dr. Lewis during his time as teaching pastor at Fellowship Bible Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. We desire to see all who are Christ followers grow in faith and maturity through the use of this podcast. Here's this week's message. Well, it is an exciting morning to be with you all. I've looked forward to this for some time. As you know, this morning, uh, we are launching ourselves off into two particular messages that for us brings upon us a new season of change. Change is what life is all about. Change is what makes life exciting. And probably the most significant change that uh, we have ever experienced since fellowship had the privilege of being birthed in 1977 is now upon us. Some of you, in light of that change, are probably eager to get going. It shows on your faces at times when we have the opportunity to interact with you. But some of you are probably riding the waves of high anxiety, as it may be. Some of you feel confused. You still haven't figured it out. You're still not sure how you work your way through this maze, and you need some encouragement. Some of you feel pressure by all of this. It seems to be imposing something on you that you're not really sure you want to receive. And some of you probably feel a combination of all those things. In fact, probably most of you feel that way. Well, one thing's for sure. This is an exciting time. It really is. It's an exciting time for the life of our church because change is exciting. And some of you have been sensing that and anticipating that. In fact, this is one of the few times in my life where I've gotten notes and cards and letters before the message. Usually I get them after the message. In fact, I even got some balloons wishing me encouragement, which kind of scares me, to tell you the truth. <laughs> I also received a very appropriate fax from Clint Eastwood. At least Clint's picture's on the sheet, and he's holding his 44 Magnum, and the words read, Go ahead. Make one more change. <laughs> well, we're going to. One more change. And change is certainly what is before us. Although the change that I would want you to know that's before us is somewhat different from the changes in previous years. I want you to think back with me for a moment because most of the changes in the past here at Fellowship have been primarily structural in nature, and then you find your way into that structure. You know, I think back over the years, and I think in 1980, we made a significant change that most people still find hard to believe. We went to something called team preaching. In 1981, we went to small groups. We had many churches, but they were floundering. And so we embarked on the new ocean of the small group ministry before most churches, even new small groups, were out there. Then in 1985, we decided to move out of a movie theater and the smell of popcorn into a facility. And that was a big change for us, to actually have a place called home. Then there were the season of life changes that we made in 1989 that was, was really revolutionary in many regards to our body and what it all meant. And even throughout that time, we were making changes because all through those seasons, we were launching congregations out of our body, something that other people only dream about. We launched a church in North Little Rock with some 150 people. We launched a church out of our body that now is Conway Fellowship Bible Church. There's been the Hot Springs Church that has come out of our body. There's even a church down the street, although they're starting to build out Highway 10 called 
Grace Community Church. All those bodies came out of this church and they involve now hundreds, even thousands of people from this church. Some major changes. In 1992, we changed our purpose statement. We altered the direction of our church so that it would become more community focused to move us off this campus and into the lives of the community where in fact the church needs to be. Those were all changes and they were all significant. And I want you to know, it took a brave congregation of people to make all those changes over all these years. And praise God, we did it. And let me, let me let you know that there have been many, many lives that will never be the same because we are a church of change. We move into change. It's not always easy. Change is many times difficult, but it's the way of life. Stagnancy is the cessation of life. The change, however, we are facing today has a different twist to it. Because I want you to know, and I think you already know, I'm not standing in front of you proposing any new real changes, at least as far as the structure is concerned. We all can look around us and see buildings being built, and that's been very clear, and you've committed to that. The graduation that many of you are facing into common cause is something that we've talked about for over five years. We've pointed to this hour. So in structure, there's nothing new. It's just a coming reality. Recasting people into season of life groups and helping them reform after that graduation. That's nothing new. Every one of you probably know and understand that, although this is more significant in the sense that now it will involve many of you. And though certainly many questions remain as to how we graduate and how people move through the system fluidly into common cause groups and find missions for their life. The how-to is still question marked by many of you and we'll deal with that next week. The structure of Fellowship Bible Church after all this spring of change is over will remain essentially exactly what it already is. It's just that some of you will be moved around. Now I say that because it's important for you to know that the change that we're talking about here this morning is not structural change anymore. So what is it? Let me ask you the question. Why do we feel so much sense of change right now? Well, I think it's obvious it's because the change we're talking about is something much higher, much holier, much more sacred. It's personal change. It's something no structure could ever impose on you or ever make happen. It's asking you to do something for yourself. It's asking you to come to a very significant place of taking truths that we already know and making them yours for a lifetime, not because you have to, not because the structure is forcing you to, but because you finally come to a place where you know they're right and you believe them and you want them for your life, whether this church was here or not. You see, the change is making truths more than just beliefs, more than just doctrinal statements, more than truths that just influence us to one degree or another based on what kind of pressure is applied to us. What I'm talking about here this morning is a change to a value system that will drive your life, will to some degree or another alter your routines and schedules and shape you for a lifetime. 
It's a process of moving us into a higher level of maturity. And I think, and we think, you're up for it. But it's personal. It's not structural. Let me take you back to 1620, a year that some of you know about historically. There was a small boat that was docked off the end of Cape Cod, thinking it was the coastline of Virginia. The name of that boat was the Mayflower. Huddled on board this ship was what remained of a group of religious dissenters seeking a new life, willing to change and take risk. They were wanting to escape the oppressive government and lifestyle that they had suffered under and experienced in Holland and England. What lay before them on the shore as they looked to that coastline of Massachusetts was in fact a bold new world. It was unknown to them. It was untamed. And in the next few years, they would discover it was also very unforgiving. For the safety and order of the group, before they left the ship, they bound themselves together with an oath. They took it together for the common good. It was an agreement that was known as the Mayflower Compact, which everyone on board personally signed. Now, if you've studied history at all, you know that that's still a famous historical document. And most of us have at least heard of the Mayflower Compact. But what you may not know, and which is for our purposes here this morning, and I think in reality for their purposes when they walked upon that foreign shore, what was more important is that this group of pilgrims also set forth for their new community. Can you imagine a new community in a hostile environment? They set forth for themselves four common values which they would draw upon to define and shape their brave colony and which would shape their new culture that they were about to unleash and unfold on this new land. These four values, by the way, have been preserved in stone in a monument that you can still find in Plymouth, Massachusetts. It's called the National Monument to Our Forefathers. It's a towering figure of a woman, and she is the symbol of faith. And around her at each of the four base points is symbols of these four particular values, which not only drove the pilgrims, but drove America for at least 150 years. Wonder if you could recall them for me. You know, if you think about it, before I tell you, as I dwelt upon these particular values, I realized that they were more than just a values that a group of people held. But because they held them so deeply, ultimately they infected the land everywhere that they went because this was a value-driven people. And these forces ultimately became the lifeblood of America. Here's what they were. Morality, law, education, and liberty. Now, if you think about that, those are, in a sense, a great definition of America. We are a nation that is extremely moral. Now, you say, well, we're not so moral now. No, we're not. But for most of American life, what set America as the diamond of nations was that it was a nation, as all sociologists would recognize, a nation of high moral values, high moral principles. We were a deeply religious people who took our religion very seriously. It wasn't just attending church. 
Because of our moralities, we set forth laws that became the envy of the world and still are. The institutions we founded, the government that we established is by all estimates the greatest democracy known in human history. It was the pilgrims and others like them that immediately began to set up schools, ultimately colleges and universities. They became known as Harvard and Brown and Dartmouth and Yale and Virginia and others. Institutions that in their beginning was committed to propagate the Christian faith and in particular Christian ministers who could go and continue to imbibe our country with great morality. And finally, liberty. And we still sing about our nation as being the land of the free. Can you imagine that started with 103 people who stepped onto our shores and by the next spring there were only 51? I say that because it shows the power of values. The story of the pilgrims is a great story, but the greatest story about them is the lesson they give to us about being a valued-driven people. Something that in our world we know a lot less about today than ever before. We know what we're against. We know what we don't want. We know what makes us uncomfortable, but we don't know what we live for. This group, starting with a fledgling group of half-starved people in a hostile environment, with their values and others like them, they transformed this bold wilderness into the greatest nation on earth in less than 150 years. It wasn't the power of their numbers, their wealth, or their intelligence. It was the power of their convictions because they held values that drove their lives, drove their schedules, altered their routines, and shaped the way they went about doing business in the world. Today I would liken the evangelical church, in some ways, allegorically speaking, to the pilgrims of 1620. And that we find ourselves on a voyage whether we wanted to get on the ship or not. We've left the shores of the old America that many of us, at least as I look around the room, many of us once knew. The world in which there were safe streets, the world in which there were neighborhood schools. The world in which there was common values. The world in which there were strong families and a clearly defined morality of right and wrong. We've left that America. We're on the high seas and now we find ourselves docked in front of some new shores. Things are not the same anymore. And hopefully, if you went through that bold new world series with me, you know America is not the same. It's a hostile, untamed, and unforgiving environment. Today, most evangelical pilgrims find themselves docked off the shoreline of this new America, huddled in their ships called churches. And they have two choices to make, really only two. The first is, is that they can stay on board their ship and protect their meager belongings while they stare out into a land that is hostile and violent and secularized and confused and for the most part hurting. The other is they can be much more daring, and that's what we're calling this church to. And that is that you will unpack your belongings and step off of the ship and into the world before us with a clear intent to build a new culture 
I hope you feel the urgency of that. If not, that urgency will come to you in the next few years before us. In some ways, our challenge, because we're here, is much more complex than the pilgrims. But on the other hand, they succeeded and left a legacy for us in the only way that we, in fact, will succeed in our daring adventure. And that is, we must start by binding ourselves together to a common set of very simple but bold values that will drive our lives rather than being driven by every new sense of entertainment that blows across our lives. The real change before us is not that some of us are about to go into common cause group. That's not really much of a change at all in one sense. Or that we're going to be recast into some new season of life group. That's a structural one. It has no heart and no spirit. It's just duty. It's just structure. And it's time to move beyond that kind of thinking. The real change that I'm calling you today is to a change of heart, to embrace values much more deeply than you've ever embraced them before, that you move beyond thoughts of inconvenience or fear of change or the fact of the pressure of not knowing to a new place where you value what is taking place because you know it's the right thing to do. So much so that if fellowship disappeared tonight, like our son did Friday, that you would get up the next day and because you embraced these values, you would begin to set yourself on a path that would begin to simply do the same things, maybe in new and different ways, but the same things because you so deeply hold to these values. You see, embraced values, not enforced structure, is what shapes a people. It's what gives them life and power and energy and causes them to survive the most hostile of conditions. That's what transforms them. And I believe that is what Jesus had in mind when He first launched His church in the first century. He did not launch them out into building buildings on street corners. He didn't do that. He launched them out into a world, but with values that drove them in that direction. This is the only antidote to the sinkhole called self-centeredness that I know of. And I make this as a passionate appeal for you to hear me here this morning. Perhaps we should spend maybe a few minutes defining what a value is. It might help us to get us all on the same page. Webster's defines a value as, and I'm quoting, that for which something is regarded as desirable. In other words, to value something you see worth in it, an advantage, a benefit, something that is valued is seen as an asset to your life. Now, a lot of us value things that in time prove out not to be an asset, but I know of no one who holds a value about something unless at least they believe on the front end that it will be of some asset, some benefit to them if they hold it. I'd like to take Webster's de definition a little further, though, by having you turn over to John chapter 15. Because I think that definition, to some degree, falls short of biblical standards. It starts it, but it doesn't finish it. John chapter 14. Of course, as you turn there, you're turning into Jesus' upper room discord, His kind of last will and testament where He's pouring out His heart, pleading with His disciples to heed these truths because it will make all the difference in the world for their life if they will follow it. But in the midst of that, there's one statement that I want to look at, verse 15. 
He says this, he says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Now I want you to look at that and think of that as a value statement or a definition of value because he's separating what I think Webster's definition is from a biblical definition of real values. Because Webster's definition, remember, it said that you simply regard something as desirable. Well, in that sense, I have a lot of values because I regard a lot of things as desirable. But let me read love with the word value and you'll see what I mean. He says, if you value me, you will keep my commandments. There's no exception. There's no if, ands, or buts. There's no if it gets tough or inconvenient or pressured. It just says, if you value me, you will keep my commandments. Now, I know a lot of people who say they value in the Webster's definition, Jesus Christ, but it does nothing. But in Jesus' definition, if you value something, and this is His definition, it will move you to do something. It will energize you to do something. Now, we all have passive values in the Webster's kind. And I have them as well as you. Some of us value healthy food, don't we? But after being at McDonald's and having the chocolate mousse and all that, we prove that it's just passive values. We regard healthy food as desirable. We just don't eat it. Some of us very much value exercise. And yet the truth of the matter is, the last time we exercised, America had a trade surplus, right? <laughs> We've heard a lot, in fact, it's a, almost a worn out phrase now, family values. We hear everybody espousing family values. The only problem is, we not only can't define it, but most Americans have no time for it. And so their kids grow up unattended, unloved, uninstructed, untutored, wild, untamed, unforgiving, and violent. But the whole time, we're talking family values. You see, that's a passive pseudo-value. And when you pass those kind of values through the grid of John 14, 15, they don't come out as values at all, do they? But they come out as something hollow, something empty, something that even borders on being hypocritical. Clearly in Jesus' mind, a value is something you not only admire and see worth in, it is something that moves you to action. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. A value creates internal energy within an individual that must be released. It must be. It can't stay there. That's a real value. In World War II, there was a platoon that came under mortar and enemy sniper fire. And one of the soldiers was hit and left out on this open plain while others found their way into a trench. And this young soldier lay out on this plain crying out to his best friend who was in that platoon, Jerry, Jerry, help me. Help me. And Jerry wanted to go, but the platoon sergeant said, you can't go out there. You'll only get yourself killed. He's a goner. Leave him as he is. Let him go. Protect yourself. But when the sergeant turned around, this young man was gone out of the trench, crawling through mortar fire and sniper fire to get to his buddy, Jerry. He pulled Jerry across that plane and down into the trench. 
only to be met with an absolutely exasperated sergeant who said, didn't I tell you you'd get yourself killed? And besides, look at, look at him. He's dead. What good did it do? To which that young man replied, he said, he wasn't when I got there. And one of the soldiers said, what did he say? And he said, he told me, Jerry, I knew you'd come. I knew you'd come. Because I knew you valued, that's really what he was saying, my friendship. You valued it. And it moved you to action. It moved you out of the trench, even though it was dangerous, even though it was going to risk your life. And that's what a value is. It's something that will move you to act, to be expressed, if you love me. See, no ifs, ands, or buts. It's time for adulthood. If you love me, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Several years ago, a distraught college girl came to see me. I never met her before, but she went to a prestigious university. She was very pretty. She had lots of friends. She was in a sorority. She made great grades, but her life and her words were empty. She said, I'm confused. I'm a Christian, but everything seems out of control. So we talked for a while. There came to a place where I asked her to tell me about her spiritual life. And she said, oh, I've, I've got great Christian parents. And she went on to really hail her parents as strong believers. She says, and I love God. And so I said, well, let me ask you a few questions about that. I said, are you involved in any church? She said, no. Have you worshipped at any time in the last year at a church? She said, well, once last semester. I said, do you have any Christian friends? She said, no. I said, do you have anyone to interact with spiritually? Just to have any kind of basic spiritual conversation, any Bible study you're in, anybody that you pray with? She said, not really. But I'm confused and I love God. You see the mixed signals there? How would you answer somebody like that? who came to you asking you for help, what would you tell them to do? That's really what she was asking me. And so I sat back and I thought, you know, I just need to ask you some questions and interact with you. But we finally came down to the issue of values. I asked her, what do you really value in your life? And you know, she really wasn't sure. That's where all the confusion was. She really wasn't sure. And so I said, you know, you've got some hard decisions to make. And in a sense, it's part of growing up. Growing up spiritually speaking. I can give you some direction. I can give you some how-tos. But the reality is, if you don't value this, then when you go back into the swamp, you'll disappear. And she said, well, I, I want to know what those things are. So I kind of wrote her out what I called a spiritual prescription. Like You know how doctors write that out? I just said, here's a sheet of paper. I'm going to give you a few things to do but they're just things to do. And they'll annoy you and they'll irritate you. You'll feel pressured by them if you don't value what's behind them. But she was open. And so I said, you need to find some group of Christians to be with. Bad company, the scripture says, corrupts good morals. It would be great if you could find a good church. In fact, I would implore you to look. Don't give up after you've gone to one or two churches and they failed you, go and find one that you really identify with. It'd be great since you're a young lady to find an older woman. This would be the best to find an older woman that you would challenge to mentor you. 
to get some Christian friends and see how that works. But I said, you can't be passive because passivity kills. Well, two years went by, and last December, I got this letter on my desk, and I opened it up, and she said, it was from her, she said, I'd like to report on the spiritual prescription. She said, I went everywhere in my city looking for a church. I didn't find one, so I changed universities. Now, you see that? That's something that moves you to act. She left a prestigious university and chose another university where she could find some spiritual input. She said, when I got there, I looked around and I began to meet some Christian friends who went to a campus organization. I prayed for a year for a woman who I could ask to challenge me in the spiritual life. And finally, God brought one across my path. After I'd asked many and they said no, I found one because she valued that. She said, for the last year, I've had this wonderful Christian godly woman who has spent time with me every week. And not only has it made an incredible difference in my life, but now I'm leading three other girls and discipling them. Now that's from zero to 60 in two years. But you know what the difference was? There was no structure. She went back to no structure. There was no one telling her, mom and dad weren't around telling her what to do. It's just finally she came to the recognition that either you value it or you don't. It either drives your schedule, your routine, and your choices, or it doesn't. But you've got to make the decision. You can't live under the crib of structure and be in a daycare center forever. Somewhere you've got to grow up. Somewhere you've got to make the choices your own. Somewhere you've got to decide whether you believe it or not. You see, there's not a person who has moved from depending on structure, depending on mom and dad, depending on school, depending on friends to do it for me, to embracing it for themselves that hadn't grown up and become a life giver rather than a life taker. This morning I'm challenging this body to a different level. It's really a different level, an Olympic level since we've watched it all these last couple of weeks. I'm challenging this body to becoming a value-driven church, to consciously, willfully make the decision to live by some common values that we can all identify with because we've acknowledged them all through the Scripture so that we can be a church who moves not because of structure, but we're a people who move because we want to. We believe it, not because we have to. And that way, common cause is not the issue or, no, or whatever other changes come about in the future. Whatever changes come are not the issues anymore. The issues are whether it's helping us accomplish this value. And if it is, great. If it isn't, don't do it. It is that simple, really. But it's a simple truth that our culture has lost sight of and we are a valueless wasteland where everybody's critiquing everything that doesn't make them comfortable, but who are going nowhere because they don't know what they really believe. Do your kids really know what you believe? What you really value? Could they articulate those things? You know, I've given you a little outline that show two graphs. They really represent two church models. I want to walk you through them real quickly here. On the left is what I call an unhealthy church model. 
It begins the way most churches have to begin. All churches, really. On the right, though, is a healthy church model, though it begins in time the same way as the one on the left. Over time, it changes. Now, there are two words that you've got to put in to this graph to make it make sense. On the upper line, in both graphs, you might just write the word structure. And on the lower line, you might write the words values. Now, let me talk you through it. When you look at the church on the left, you realize that any church needs to give people structure. When they first come into it, they need to know, especially if they're new believers, what to believe. They need to be taught the Christian faith, what's right and wrong, how to do things, how to live. But over time, and that's that graph time, that bottom line, if over time somehow, over that time, nothing really much changes, if all that, that goes on somehow does not become internalized, these values, by the individuals, then the structure, if you notice there, it must stay high. It must stay high to keep people coming. And here's how it stays high, by doing one of two things. It either becomes authoritarian, and it tells you, you must be here, you must do this, you must give this amount, you must show up on this time, you must come to this seminar, which is kind of what the 50s and 60s church did. Or it can change and become like the 80s and 90s church, and we just try to put on greater and greater structures of entertainment to keep you coming back. We just compete head-to-head -head with the world, and we make it fun here and exciting, and we make it feel good so you'll keep coming back, and it puts more and more pressure on past pastors to do an entertainment Christianity, which I know is burning many of them out across the country so that people keep coming. But internally, they're still at the same place they were at the beginning as far as values. And the minute you take, notice how it dips at the end? The minute the structure ceases to be authoritarian or entertaining, people just simply disregard the values and take their hose and go around and find someplace else to plug in. And you know what that's called? That's called infancy. Now there's another structure and it's one that I hope that we're embarking on. And it is, in some ways, starting at the same place, but over time, the structure begins to release people. But it's doing so because it's trusting that the people's values are increasing. If you want to know where we are, you can just draw a little circle at the intersection there of values and structure. <laughs> That's Fellowship Bible Church at this moment. We're at a place where we're going to say, we're going to release you. As you graduate out of season of life, everybody still needs structure. And every new person coming to our church would start at high structure and ideally move down to low while their values go up. But it makes a great faith statement, and that is that you've got to internalize these values. If you don't want to go to common cause at this point, don't. Don't! There finally comes a place where you need to be released to choose how you're going to live. We cannot create enough structures to corral you. You know? And besides, I don't want to spend my life corralling carnality. I want to come to a place where we have helped you come face to face with the Master of heaven and earth, the Lord, the King, to whom you will report and give you this great, wonderful opportunity to live with Him and serve Him and follow Him. And then you make that choice. You think, thank you. And you make that choice. 
And then it doesn't really matter what the structure is. You see that? Because you have the structure in here. You're going to find a place to serve. You're going to find the place to live your Christian life. You'll do it because you're grown up. Now, there are a lot of grown-ups here. And that's why I say today, common cause is not the issue here. It's not the issue. The issue is whether we will be a value-driven church or whether there will be this kind of internal call back to a structure-driven church, which none of the leadership wants any more part of. That's our values. So what are the values I'm asking you to embrace? I'm not asking to shape your whole life, but there are some basic ones. And we teach these in Discovery. They're not going to be new for you, but they're like the pilgrims. They're four. And here's what they are. Let me list them for you. Worship, community, spiritual growth, and service. Now let me go through those and show you how those get played out in the old school. In the old school of structure, here's the way worship plays out. You need to be at worship. You need to come. When it's cold and rainy, you still need to get up. Will you? It tells you, please join us for this praise group. Please come and pray with us. See, it's all external, appealing to external. Or how about community? You need to be in a community group. You need to have somebody you're accountable to. You need to be involved with other Christians in some way that gets past superficiality. External to external. Structural. Or how about spiritual growth? You need to have some time in the Word. You need to read the Bible. Come to our Bible study. Join me at this seminar. Please, go on this retreat with us. External to external. Or how about service? Will you help in the Learning Center? Please? How about pretty please? Will you? Well, we really need you. Our kids desperately need you. Will you? Why not? Can you help in community group? Will you go down and help at STEP? Will you join us in some way in common cause? External to external. Now let me tell you what kids see in that. Because kids catch the values. Your kids catch the values. Because they're sitting around and they watch. And if they see church as being only something conditional on how I feel, and if it's too cold, or if they've discovered that the choir's not singing, or if such and such they've got a stand-in preacher, or whoever, and so we're not going to go today. We were, stayed up late last night watching the Razorbacks game, so we're doing that. They know what the value is. It's not worship. It's comfort. And they catch that comfort, and let me tell you, they will live out comfort the rest of their life. You don't have to, you can tell them, honey, when they go out to college, you need to be in church. And they're going to tell you in all kinds of different ways, but mom, it's not entertaining. It's no fun there. You know? It's hard. Don't, I mean, I'm in college. All they're doing to you, listen, is parroting back your values. Because to you, worship was not a value. There was some other value driving that. Or how about when it comes to spiritual growth or community or whatever, if it's only when I can be with my friends, you have told them that Christianity is a homogeneous, like-minded, look-alike group rather than what the Bible says it is, 
an interactive, non-homogeneous group of people worldwide who believe the same things. You see that? Or when it comes to service, if it's only when you feel pressured to or you've got to do your duty, then what you're telling is, live for yourself, honey. Don't live for others. And I'm making an incredible value statement to my kids that service is the way of death. Self is the way of life. Now, I know we like to run from that. I'm not going to let you run today. You need to hear this. I'm pleading with you to hear these values because unless we're a value-driven people, we're a church crib. We're not the first century explosive life change revolutionary church. We're not. That's why all this change is meaningless apart from values. Of course, of these four values here, the one that's in the spotlight this spring as we graduate hundreds to common cause is service. And I want to talk about, let me just dwell on that just for a few more minutes. Interestingly, you know, we come to this place just as a new survey has come out by Scripps News Service and Ohio University that report, and listen, that most Americans today are losing their spirit of volunteerism and community service. Only one in four Americans say they like to participate in any charities or community service efforts. Volunteerism, it says, is at its lowest among Americans 35 years and younger. They're the least to serve today in any way. Says Lions Club President James Coffey, he says, quote, younger Americans say they're too busy, that they don't have time. But I'm going to say something unpopular. I think it's a cop-out. We have to get people away from the television themselves to stop them from being couch potatoes. But boy, by the time you read the end of that article, it doesn't tell you how they're going to do that. How are we going to do that? How are you going to move 200 million people around to thinking about somebody other than themselves when the only value of our system, after everything's been torn down, every absolute reduced to rubble, how are you ever going to move people to think about somebody other than themselves? How? It's an unbelievable question. And I say it will only happen when some fledgling group of pilgrims covet together in a live for the common good exercise and begin to model that and the satisfaction and lifestyle that brings to a community that's absolutely out of control. That's the only way. Let me show you how Jesus would answer that dilemma. You might turn over to Matthew Chapter 16, and again, I'm going to paraphrase this, but I think this statement in Matthew 16 is very much a value statement. And what it pits here, as you'll see, is the values of self and service. It's a call to discipleship. And by the way, the call to discipleship is not for just a few. It was for the church, everybody. So look at verse 25. As Jesus talks about discipleship, He comes and He says, For whoever wishes to save his life shall lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake shall find it. Now just look at the verse for a moment. Let me tell you a few insights. Notice the first phrase in this couplet is valuing self. And Jesus says if you value self and guard yourself and protect yourself and live for you, you're going to lose your life. On the other hand, He says, 
if you value something for my sake. He doesn't define what that is, but it's living for Him. He says it'll bring life. And we come in this day to a very fair question. And that is, is Jesus Christ lying here? Is He lying? If you believe that He's telling the truth and you value that the way John 14, 15 values that kind of statement, then pointing to common cause groups somewhere in the near future should be exciting to you, even if you're here and all you're a member of is a discovery class. Because the value you're hearing is that, you know, as I move through this church and finally find a place where I can use my unique gifts, that's going to give me life. It's going to energize my life. It's going to mean that I'm going to do something bigger than me. And it's going to be exciting to be a part of that. And so it doesn't matter, even by the time I get there, maybe they've changed all of Common Cause. Maybe it's something totally different. It doesn't matter. It's they're helping me get to a place where Jesus says I'll find life. If, on the other hand, you don't value this truth, you're suspicious about it, you question its validity in your heart, then all the changes to move people to finally come into kind of an internal crisis where they find a place where, not, not that it's going to happen overnight, but at least puts them on the road to trying to come to some kind of place where a portion of their life is given to advancing the kingdom of God and making a difference in the community. Coming to that place will in fact just simply attack the real values that they hold and their search for significance that's built on other tracks other than Matthew 16, 25. And so all this talk about you're going to be moving through this place to come to a place of serving somebody, living above yourself for a greater cause and a greater king, you know how that's going to feel internally? It's going to feel annoying. It's going to feel like an irritant. It's going to feel like something that is not what you want to do. That's what it'll feel like. You see, there's a great question here. <laughs> do you value Matthew 16, 25? I mean, really, do we really believe that? That the way of life is outside ourself? Or do we value it like Webster's Dictionary? <laughs> and I, listen, I'm so guilty of reading something like this and go, man, that's a great statement. Gosh, that's a holy statement. And I highly regard it in the Webster's Dictionary of a value passively. Just passively. I highly regard it. But then I'm going to go out and do what I want to do. On the other hand, if I regard it like John 14, 15, Jesus' definition of a value, then reading that verse puts an energy within me that has to be satisfied in action. I've got to someplace discover my uniqueness in Christ that I am valuable. I've been created for a purpose I've got something to do for the kingdom, and I need to be about doing it before my master returns. It may be a little thing, just like we, we sung. It may just affect two or three. But can you imagine what it'll feel like in eternity to stand before this great king with the two and three with you? See, this is serious stuff. But I want you to know, it is exciting stuff. Do we value this in Webster's? or in Jesus' dictionary. Because if it does, it will impel you with a truth that will germinate there and has to be expressed in service for the kingdom. Has to be. 
And I'm convinced that the only way people are ever going to rediscover America as a place to really live in is when they do everything they can to get as far away from self as possible. In fact, I want you to know, I get to see people all the time, deeper than most. And the happiest, healthiest people I know are those whose natural affections and energy and time are constantly moving away from themselves and onto others. It's the way of life. But you have to value that or it'll become the sinkhole and black death star of self. You have to value that. You know, the 1950s was a time of unprecedented prosperity for Americans. Incomes were up after the war. Opportunities were everywhere. The country was at peace. The previous unthinkable suburban dream of a house in the suburbs and a, two cars and all that was being realized by millions and millions of people. People's focus during the 50s was on bettering themselves almost to a fault. And we look back that nostalgically and look at that as a great time. But one of the great psychologists, Rollo May, wrote in a description of 50s man in his book, Man's Search for Himself, these words about the 50s. He said, the clearest picture of the empty life is a suburban man who gets up at the same hour every weekday, takes the same train to work in the city, performs the same task in the office, lunches at the same place, leaves the same tip for the waitress each day, comes home on the same train each night, has 2.3 children, cultivates a little garden, spends a two-week vacation at the shore every summer, which he does not enjoy, goes to church every Christmas and Easter, and moves through a routine, mechanical existence, year after year, until he finally retires at 65, and very soon thereafter dies of heart failure possibly brought on by repressed hostility. And yet I have always had the secret suspicion that he simply died of boredom. What a great picture of Matthew 16, of saving your life only to lose it. Only to lose it in emptiness. And yet I would say that the death march into self has only gotten more extreme in the 80s and the 90s. And we have to ask, is there any hope? Is there? And I want you to know, there he is. But it will take pilgrims of the 1620 kind. It will take a group of people who are committed to being a value-driven people to redeem our world. The only hope of this world is the church of Jesus Christ. That's it. And so today I'm asking you not to join so much a common cause. I'm asking you to do much something much more holy and much more radical. I'm asking you to actively, not passively embrace these four crucial values, which if embraced by you, will change the way we live, our life, our schedules, our focus, our routines. It won't take them over, but it will alter them just enough to infuse something of a much higher character Values which will impact this community. Values which will impact your children because they will live out your values. They will. They'll live them out. I'm asking for a fellowship compact. And I want to do something to make it official today. I'm going to ask the ushers if they would help me with this. And this will take just a moment, so bear with me. But I started to think how I could help you kind of come to grips with this. And I don't have a sheet of paper for you to sign, but I do have what is the American way, a credit card for you to have before you leave. 
And so they're going to pass this out. And uh, as they do, they're going to pass the offering. And this is one of the few times the offering is going to be passed and you get to take something out of it. Okay? Now, as they're passing them out, just we'll be dismissed here in a moment, but as they're passing them out, I got two things I want you to know as you're getting these. Some of you are going to think of this as a gimmick. And I tell you, I resisted doing this for a long time because I thought, you know, I hate gimmicks. I do. I hate them. I don't want people giving me a gimmick. So if you feel that this is a gimmick, you can register your protest at the end by just simply leaving the card in the seat. You don't have to take it with you. So I want you to know, I'm not trying to do a gimmick, but there has to be a place where we come to, where we go more than just hearing about it, where you're moved to act. And so this is an opportunity for you to act. Secondly, this card cannot be activated. This card means nothing. It can't be activated. It has no value unless your signature is on it in the presence. Now, it says pastor there, but because this is a large audience, it can be any friend that you have. It can be your family. It can only be activated when you make a verbal, written commitment to someone that you intend to live out these values in this community, whether you have Fellowship Bible Church or not. So it can't be activated without your signature and the signature of one other. Now, there's some great ways to use that. Moms and dads, you might think about this. And if you come to a place where you're willing to put your name on the line, it might be good to get all your kids in there. Just talk about those values. And then sign and have them sign as your witnesses. Maybe you're a single person. It might be good to get two or three of you together as singles and have a, a ceremony of some kind. The card's not important. The values are everything. But to give you a place where you can come to some definition of your life and sign it and say, you know, there's a lot of things competing for me. But I intend to be clear about who I am and where I want to go. Now, if you look on the back, it's going to talk about some things. And I want to mention briefly what I'm intending here. It says regular weekly worship. Now, there are times where you're going to miss but I'm talking about people who don't miss because it's inconvenient. I'm talking about people who come, whether the sermon's good or anything, they come because they intend to worship God and they need that discipline. And they want their kids to see how important that is. When we talk about community, I don't care where you find a group, but find a group if it's here, we can provide that in common cause and season of life. But find a group that will bring mutual support and accountability where you can be yourself and struggle together to live the Christian life. If you can find it better somewhere else, find it. Just find a community. When it talks about growing, it's talking about trying to practice a lifestyle that manifests biblical truth and personal integrity and family as a priority and being well-reasoned and talking about social issues because you have a position there. You've taken the time to come to a commitment on what you believe the Christian faith says. And when it talks about serving, you're committed to finding some place where before your life is over, with no regrets, you can look back and you can say, by yourself, to the Spirit of God, to Jesus Christ, to God the Father, I served you. You can say that. Not I attended the church. Not at the funeral. He was on the membership rolls of. God forbid. I serve Jesus Christ. 
This card can only be activated with your signature and a witness who hears you verbalize these values. And you, and you tell them, they're going to be mine. If you remember, Nehemiah built the wall around a broken Jerusalem by having every family just simply go out and rebuild that portion of the wall which is in front of their house. What a great allegory for today. All I'm asking you to do, I'm not asking you to go out and do something great necessarily, though some of you will. I'm just simply asking you to move away from self, to move away from a destructive American value system that will kill this nation, to a value system that can save it, if you will just simply go out of your house and rebuild the wall with the bricks of worship and community and growth and service. If you do that, you will be the most unique person in this country. You will be a difference maker. You will be a revolutionary. And I will promise you, this church will have an unimaginable impact on this community. Thank you for listening to the Dr. Robert Lewis Sermon Podcast. If you were encouraged by this message, please rate and review this podcast. In addition, share this with your friends and community. This podcast was produced by the team at Sound of a Rose. You can learn more about the team at soundofarose.com.